Right, perfect. Thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for obviously joining. Um, so obviously the this this episode's around obviously startup to kind of scale up, and John's going to introduce himself and talk to us around um, yeah the the startup, the MBA journey, and his own sort of career journey thus far. Um, so do you want to kind of introduce yourself, John, and talk to us a little bit about your your background and prior to starting uh, my digital accounts? Yeah, thank, thank, thanks very much, Sean. I'm uh, yeah, I'm 56 years old. I know I don't look, uh, I know I don't look that old. Uh, it's funny when you get to an age like this, you've got experience to uh, to share with others. In 1990, which doesn't sound that long ago to me, I qualified as an accountant with PwC. Um, I, like a lot of accountants in the big four, I then went to work in the consultancy department and ended up um, as a, as a as a factory uh, manager. Um, working, making airline meals, you know, the little sandwiches that you get when you um, when you get on a plane. Eventually, it was an American-owned company. I ended up working in San Francisco. So I now I'm a, now I'm a tech guru uh, or a software guy. <laughs> I like to explain the fact that I used to work in Silicon Valley. What I don't explain to people is I was only putting sandwiches on planes. Um, <laughs> I eventually came back to the UK after 9-11 because all the money drained out of the industry and did the buyout of a company called Paystream with a private equity company called um, Lloyd's Development Capital. Many in the recruitment world will know Paystream. They're the largest umbrella um, operator, umbrella payroll operator in the UK. I left Paystream in 2009 to start um, and then and started an accountancy company in a, in a similar industry. Um, I eventually then, the, the business was growing, but it was very, very reliant on its software. And the software was run by a one-man band. We were we were very conscious of the fact that that was a, a, a risk area for the company, a single point of failure. I knew somebody in India from a previous life, um, and together he became my co-founder, and we set up a development house in India and the UK entity. That is um, that's how my digital came into being, which yeah. was in 2015. Yeah, so I suppose after your kind of extensive background in finance and payroll, etc., what what kind of made you start your own your own software business in in MDA? Yeah, I, I mean, we'll, we'll hope, hopefully I'll, uh, I'll I'll be able to explain a bit later. Um, before you um, before you embark on a startup, you you know think about it very carefully. Um, what what made me do? I think there are two types of people who start up a business. There's of their own. One is you've got a fierce ambition that you want to work on your own and you want to be your own boss. And um, probably those who are familiar with the Amicus journey would recognize that's probably describes you and Dave. The other types of entrepreneurs are people who, for whatever reason, become unemployable. Um, they're a bit old, they're made redundant, or something else happens in their life. In my case, um, I was largely unemployable, which is why I became an entrepreneur. I stumbled into my digital as a result of one of my other companies I mentioned that I'd started up, um, and that's that's how it that's how it came into being. That uh, I was always going to work on my own from about 2012. My digital was simply the next incarnation. Yeah, and do you want to just explain, you know, in brief, brief terms, explain what, what my source like solution is to the, to the market, I suppose? 
Yeah, so uh, as you know, I'm an accountant by, by background. My digital actually started life as an accounting product, um, looking after temporary workers. Um, it then developed into an umbrella payroll, um, into an umbrella payroll software product. For those of you not familiar with the umbrella world, it, it's a, a payroll process with 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 kind of margins and other complicated calculations that my digital was able to cope with. The other more standard software wouldn't be. Um, wouldn't be incentivized to invest in because Sage's market is more what mainstream, ours was niche. So my digital runs um, timesheets and payrolls and there are 70,000 contractors processed through the system every week. Yeah, perfect. So I suppose, um, do you want to tell us about the, the journey in terms of inception and, and, and kind of where it is today on that, on that journey? Because obviously you've been founded for, for nearly eight years now, and I imagine there's been some some heartaches, some some successes along the way. But do you want to kind of tell us about the, the journey um, at a kind of a broad level um, and where, where you started, where it is today, I suppose, in terms of maybe numbers, etc.? Yeah, so 2015 to 2023, yeah, as you say, eight years um, uh, to get to that 70,000 um, in, individuals processed through our system. And we do not, we're not business to consumer. We only sell to businesses. So our relationship is not directly with the contractor, it's with the intermediaries that actually pay them. So when we started My Digital, the initial customer was, of course, the accountancy company that, that, that had been established. We were developing the software and I quickly fell in love with what we were creating. And I knew that it could be sold wider in the industry. But in order to do that, I could not be running a competitor company. So a management buyout was organized from the accountancy company. And then uh, effectively from that point on, from 2015, I began to sell the software into the wider market. Um, it was 2017 when we got our second customer. So you have a proof of concept, 2016 effectively, you can take to the wider market. 2017 was the second customer. Um, then when we went beyond that, and we'll come to the funding journey in a second, but a big, um, a, a big inflection point for the company was in 2019. Our revenue at that point was around about 200,000, quarter of a million pounds a year in 2019. We got some institutional investment and that was an inflection point from which the company then progressed. Um, I think at the time we probably only had about 15 customers. Um, and uh, we then from 2019 onwards to the present day, I don't want to say it's like a snowball rolling down a hill and it gathers pace and it gathers mass. It makes it sound a lot easier than it is. But the injection of cash allowed us to scale our business to the point where it has now got beyond startup to scale up. The, the, the most significant part of the journey for me, Sean, was um, the point at which we broke even. Um, and we broke even sometime during 2021, in, in the summer of 2021. Might not sound like a significant achievement to people outside, but in terms of a business, I think it's true to say the difference between a startup and a scale up 
is a scale up has achieved break even. Now there'll be some people on the on the call who'll be looking and thinking quite cynically about that because they'll say Amazon lost money until 2009, and that couldn't possibly have been described as a startup in the noughties. I recognise that. I can only talk about it from my perspective. So that break even point in 2021, very very significant. Uh, part of the journey and where we are now in 2023 we're not a mature business but we are a scale up so a lot of the risk is behind us yeah and you mentioned there about uh, you know from founding the business 2015 2016 kind of quite quite um issue proof of concept kind of stage where you where you're almost testing the, the the products in the market how, and then your second customer was obviously achieved in 2017. So a big, you know, um, obviously developing the product, understanding of it, etc. How, how did you find that as a, as a founder of a business, you know, two years in and, and still maybe on one to two customers? How, how did you find that? Or was that all part of the plan? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the funny thing about the benefit of hindsight is you kind of rewrite history. So um, I'm remembering it now as best I can. Um, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, would all be Warren Buffet. Um, <laughs> and the benefit of hindsight, life will be no fun whatsoever. Um, but when I look back now to 2017, um, it must have been very, very lonely because you as a founder, um, and, and if you're lucky enough to have a partner, which I did in, in Ravan, that makes it significantly less lonely. It, but nevertheless, you have self-doubts, you worry that, why am I doing this if nobody else is doing it? Um, and what drives you on in those moments is that steely determination to deliver on that, that original vision you had. Um, and, and I would say the winning of the second customer was probably if i had to list the 10 most significant parts of the journey i obviously yeah. mentioned um i obviously mentioned uh, break even the second customer is a big philip because once you've got your second customer it comes not just with the injection of revenue it comes with the injection of confidence don't get me wrong it's not a walk in the park by any stretch of the imagination and i'll always be extraordinarily grateful for the patience of those early customers um, but that's how that's how I describe it. Yeah, it's lonely, but each little stepping stone is an injection of confidence. Um, yeah, and that, yeah that, that's what I'd remember of that of that period. Yeah, when I when I speak to sort of founders and stuff like that, I say each step's kind of climbing that that mountain, isn't it? I suppose second customer, you've got that, you know, especially selling it B two B. I suppose it's a little bit different B two C. But when you get a second paying kind of customer, you've almost then got a little um, portion of the of a, a huge market, but you've kind of shown that it's not just that one customer buying into the product. It's, you know, it's, it's multiple, whether that be two, three or four, but yeah, obviously uh, two years to get to that. So I think the key thing there is kind of always back yourself, believe in the vision, et cetera. Um, but I suppose that leads nicely onto the, to the next question around funding. Mm. What, you know, uh, what's it been like to generate funding? Um, and, and I suppose, how's that maybe differed from from other kind of ventures that you've started prior to software? Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I'd like people to take away from this uh, from this call, if there's only one thing you take away, cash is king in absolutely every every walk of life. And I suppose ultimately, when you start out, you're also trying to make cash for yourself, and you're trying to uh, develop a retirement and a legacy. 
the reality is you go on the journey, other things other than cash become more important, but cash is king. So funding is an absolute integral part of the startup journey, and there's no getting away from it. There are, there are three types of funding, in, and again, other people have different perspectives. This, this is from my point of view. Three types of funding are the self-funding is the first type, which is very easy to uh, conceive of. The second type of funding is friends and family or angel investors. The important thing to remember is in, in these circumstances, they're neither friends nor family, they're business contacts or colleagues that you have. Um, because unless you're lucky to be you and Blair running his apprentice company with a very wealthy father, most people, when you say friends and family funding, it means business contacts that you've built up over the years. Um, and as well as my second customer that I mentioned being very important, the friends and family who invested in my digital will always, I will be forever in their debt. I'll just come back to the specifics in a second. The third part of the journey is institutional investment. And some people then talk about this as Series A, Series B, Series C funding. That is the most expensive funding you get because you're you're having to dilute your equity. You're giving away your equity. Um, that's the most expensive money you'll ever raise. Um, so just before I talk about our funding journey, um, I just want to go back to what, what you, you'd said before, Sean, which was it's like a series of steps. And that is absolutely true, but it's only a series of steps with the benefit of hindsight. Without hindsight, or you're always at the, at the next step up and there's nothing in front of you. So um, it's important to always recognize that this is a lot more scary in real time than it is in hindsight. But if we go back to when I first, um, when, I, when, when the company first started, um, and self-funding was okay for me to an extent because uh, there'd been a management buyout of the accountancy company I mentioned. So I'll always be grateful to the management team of that company who provided that self-funding that really kick-started my digital. Um, the, the, and that bit's relatively easy because you're backing yourself. Um, you don't have to present, you don't have to present to yourself, you don't have to create a business model if you don't want to. You just empty your own personal bank account and put it in the company bank account. Um, in 2017, we did the second phase um, friends and family fundraising. Um, I was lucky enough to have some good business friends in the um, in the industry, and they understood the concepts of what I was trying to do in terms of a payroll and accounting product for the temporary labour market. So the people who invested, generally speaking, all came from our industry. When I say our industry, I mean the recruitment industry that that, that you and I work in. There were 12 of them. Um, I will have their names emblazoned on my heart forever. Uh, and they're very forgiving as well. But I did know that the money was going to run out because we used that to build the team, uh, particularly to expand the dev team in India. Um, everything is very expensive at that point. You need bigger offices. You need offices that look a bit more attractive. You need um, individual employees who have got previous experience. Whereas in the, in the self startup, you, you, you can kind of hire people who haven't got any experience at all. 
So we always knew that that money would be burnt through in two years. And then we, we were rather complacent and said, that's okay. At that point, we'll raise private equity money. Um, at that point, as I mentioned, the revenue was only a quarter of a million. It's too small for private equity type investment. And then you're kind of scratching around and anybody who survives that valley of death period, as I call it, that's the startup period that lasts for at least the first three years of a company. So 90% of software companies fail in the first three years um, and 70% of startups fail in the first three years. That's the valley of death. So we were getting to the end of that period and I thought, yeah, we'll be able to raise money and we were too small. We were very lucky because George Osborne, um, who was the chancellor at the time, had started something called the Northern Powerhouse Fund. And it was designed specifically for companies like My Digital, who were in that twilight zone where they had lots of potential, but they were too small for traditional institutions to back. Um, and so we were fortunate enough to stumble into the Northern Powerhouse Fund. Um, and the one in the Northwest that we utilized was run by Maven Capital with the agent. Because you set up a, a government-owned private equity firm, you don't want civil servants engaging directly with entrepreneurs. Um, and so they used an experienced private equity agent to manage the investment. Um, so we were able to raise 1.2 million from the Northern Powerhouse. So by this stage, we'd raised 2.4 million. You're then into the, the third stage. Now, some companies then run out of money and, and, and raise capital again. We didn't. I was hyper-focused on achieving break-even. And that's partly as a product of my experience as an accountant. Some people would argue that accountants don't make great scale up business leaders because they're too conservative. That may be true, but one thing that's undeniable is I was uber focused on break even. We took that money, as I met, we took that money in 2019. And as I mentioned, we burned through a lot of it. Um, but at the point we had about half a million pounds left in the bank when we broke even in 2021. Um, so that's the My Digital journey. But if I just use a couple of parallels, I want to talk about that valley of death first three years. Most companies end up in there. And some people on the call will be familiar with the likes of Hiring Hub, um, a product business that um, seeks to um, put, put candidates and uh, clients together to eliminate the human intervention in there in the recruitment process. Hiring Hub just about made it through that three years, but it left the equity behind for all the um, seed investors. So you still hear about Hiring Hub today, but that was one of those companies that raised all that money. It kind of survived, but everybody lost their equity. There's no shame in that, and it's not to do with lack of effort, let me tell you. Uh, an example of something that's been successful, again in our market, is access technologies that some of you will have heard of. In fact, I'd be surprised if some of you aren't using a lot of their products. Um, their timesheet products and payroll products are very um, dominant in the market. Access Technologies um, did a refinancing, as you call it, or a further buyout last year at a valuation of nine billion pounds. Um, now, what's so extraordinary about that achievement is that company started in 1991 um, and it was called Access Accounting. It was a software 
products started by uh, a guy in Colchester, of all places. Uh, a number of things happened in that in that company, but in 2010, they sought private equity investment at a valuation of £50 million. They achieved that, and then in the last 12 years, they've turned that value from £50 million into £9 billion. It's an extraordinary achievement, and they are a brilliant example of how the funding model can work very effectively over a period of 12 years. They've turned 50 million into 9 billion, and who wouldn't be happy with that? Yeah, I suppose the, um, the, the, the obviously, you're, you were fortunate, you know, to, to have the, the, the startup capital to be, you know, to invest initially yourself. A lot of companies obviously you know, maybe don't have that luxury, etc. Um, and I think the the thing that's maybe materialised, especially the last 12, 18 months, is the there's not as much free cash in the market anymore, right? So a lot of companies having to get to that proof of concept, um, revenue generation um, a lot earlier than perhaps they were um, a couple of years ago. Um, and I think obviously that was your key step, is obviously turn it into a, a revenue generator, um, no matter how small that is, early doors, a lot of companies are three, four years down the line before they actually even, um, yeah, have have paying customers, even longer in some instances. Um, mm. Yeah, so it's interesting, obviously, that you you were, you were generating revenue quite, you know, in a, in a shorter amount of time than other businesses. Um, what, what, what would say, Sean, just sorry to talk across you there, that the, the type of industry that you do a startup in will your cash requirement will be significantly different. If I can just draw a broad parallel between services business and product or goods businesses, you know, if you if you want to do a startup where you're reselling oil, for example, you need massive amount of cash to be able to buy the stock, etc. With a software company, you need significant amounts of cash to generate a software product that people will buy. In the services industry, you don't need as much cash. So think about the recruitment uh, market. You, you simply um, employ people who then will generate revenue for you there and then. So you don't need quite as much cash. It doesn't mean though that a services business is easier to run than a, than a product startup. Um, in some ways, services is harder because you rely on carrying the people with you because that's your asset. Um, you're absolutely right. I was very lucky having done startups previously that I had some cash behind me. So that bootstrap stage, as we call it, um, and my ability to self-fund did give me an advantage. If, but most software and product businesses don't have that luxury. So they either find an initial angel investor or they just have to accept it's going to take a lot, lot longer than they might like. Yeah, it's a really good point you raised. Yeah. So I suppose in terms of, you know, what challenges have you found and when starting a software business? Obviously, you've had a couple of other startups in that payroll kind of accounting sector. How does it kind of differ? Um, you know, this is your first kind of software venture, isn't it? So what, what should have been, you know, some of the challenges and I suppose how does it differ from, from other businesses? Yeah, um, so, I mean, that's, that's, that's such a great question. I mean, when, when I was doing, you know, accountancy startups, that was right in my comfort zone. Um, my, my head is built like an Excel spreadsheet, which means that things like cash forecasting comes second nature to me. Um, the downside of that is you don't want to get stuck next to somebody like me at dinner because uh, it'd be a very boring <laughs> conversation. Um, but 
but moving from being an accountant to being a, a software um, a software expert it is it what challenges did i face well i didn't have a natural subject matter expertise advantage over others at the time so it is a bit of a leap of faith but i was able to find a partner in um, my good friend in India who um, who helped me set it up. So I was able to, to lean on him. That was one of the biggest differences with the, the service companies that I'd run in the, in, in the past. So that, that's a big challenge. You, you know, make sure you know um, more about your industry than, than even the competition. It, you know, find a niche. For, um, find a like-minded partner because they'll keep you going during the tough times. The, the other challenge that, that you inevitably face is you are naturally controlling if you're a startup. You will be probably be naturally controlling as an individual because you will constantly be nervous about the cash position. That will naturally make you controlling. As the company begins to grow, you have to become less controlling, and that's probably against all your instincts. Um, and as an individual, that's probably the greatest challenge that I faced is just letting go and giving the team room to expand the business on their own metal and accepting the fact that you as a founder become not just less important, in some ways you get in the way because the things that you need to make a successful startup are very different to the things that you need to make a successful scale up. So yeah. some of those personal things, um, personal personality traits, I think are, are the biggest challenges that anybody will face. Yeah. And, and I suppose from, from when you're talking around, obviously letting that, that team go, what, what sort of things you have to consider? Do you just have to kind of give them a little bit more rope to, to be creative and let them, because obviously at this point now you're hiring people with in different areas of the business, probably with more skills in a certain area than, 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 than you have. So if you kind of just have to give them a little bit more rope to kind of, uh, yeah, to kind of make that journey their own in a way. Yeah, it, it, it's um, it, it's not easy, and and it, it, if if one of my executive team was sitting on this call, so I think about Dan Moss, who's my chief operating officer, who was employee number one, um, he would probably he would probably still describe me as uh, as a little too controlling, and that may well be correct, but it's not for the want of trying, and I'm certainly less controlling than I than I was. What what happens to an extent, Sean, is it happens naturally. So to, just to just to touch on to the work that Amicus and other uh, recruitment companies do, and you guys are focused on tech, so you'll be very familiar with this. And um, it, it, as a startup, it's frustrating for a recruiter because you will you will be conscious that cash is very important. So somebody writes a job spec for somebody that you know is 150,000 pounds in the market. And then they tell you they've got a budget of 40,000. Um, and I think you and I may even have had some of these conversations in 2018, 19. Um, but eventually you start to hire people with more experience. And those people with more experience lead you in a slightly different direction and they kind of force you to become less controlling. 
um, because the force of their personalities, their confidence and their knowledge, um, and almost the, the, the more skilled the individual that you're hiring, the, the, the more ability the company gets to scale itself up without its founder. Um, so those bigger hitters are a crucial part of that journey. Now it does create some significant challenges from personality point of view. Everything looks easy in a textbook, but the people who get you to that scale up point are the people who are good in a startup. How do you stay faithful to those people when you bring other people into the business later into the journey. Psychologically, it's extraordinarily difficult both for you as the CEO and founder and for the individuals who help you through the journey. The, the, the only advice I would have on that, and my advice isn't necessarily perfect, but I would say be open. Try to be open as far as you can be in terms of what the business will need in the future. So one thing that we have always had, as well as a three-year business plan, um, so you can imagine my cash flow forecasts go out three years. Uh, <laughs> they might not be accurate, but I feel comfortable the fact that I've got them. Yeah. We also have an organization chart that, that, that's obviously today. There's one for one year's time, and there's another one for three years' time. And be open with your executive team as you formulate those organization charts because um, you cannot afford a CTO, even though you're a software company, when you start. But when you're scaling up, you absolutely need a CTO. And if you can envision that by putting it onto a, a, a proposed organization chart, it just makes it a lot more comfortable for everybody when it comes to having the conversation when you are hiring somebody, because it's always been there. So, yeah, th those... Um, the, the, the marrying the incumbents with new resource that you bring in is an important balance to get right. And and the other, one of the other learnings, and I, and I may refer to some other individuals a little later on, is if you bring in a big hitter, assume they're only going to be fifty percent as good as you think they're going to be, because I think that's a pretty good benchmark. So if you can develop people from within. And that necessarily means hiring young people, hiring people who are not quite at the level you need for the role. That's probably quite a good investment for the future. So yeah. Yeah, that's how I'd answer the question. Yeah, I think I think obviously being in 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 the, in the tech industry, I know a lot of companies may you know the first three or four employees want a CTO, but I think when you actually dig in, delve into it, it's just the job title. At the end of the day, they're actually a lead developer, just developing a product that the that the founder has because typically the founder it's a like like yourself you kind of be the product expert this is what you want the product to look like and you're kind of giving some of that technical um entrepreneurial to kind of get to that end point um but like you said you probably initially in my you know in my experience don't need an official cto who's kind of running the, the strategy so to speak um yeah i would add to that actually uh, for for anybody listening as well be very conscious that when you give a title you can never take it away again without ripping the heart out of the, the individual and, and be very careful about giving those titles because I, I often say this about um, 
you know, salaries as well. You, you, you've got to be conscious of the psyche of the individual. You give somebody a CTO title, they'll feel good about it for four weeks, then it'll soak into the baseline. Um, you ever take it away again and it'll rip the heart out of your relationship with the individual. So just be very conscious of that as you're growing. Be measured in what you're giving. Um, bonuses are far easier to give than salary increases is another example so they're the kind of things to keep it in mind always have a longer term view because when yeah. you try and you try and have a longer term view and then work back to the back to the present it might take some of that it might reduce the risk of making some of those errors in terms of a business as well as starting a business i often say to people think about what the world will be like in 25 years time then work back and, and see if you think you're going to be in the right place. So I wouldn't start a taxi firm, for example, because in 25 years' time, predominantly we'll have driverless cars. Um, and, and and try and have that 25-year view. I think we've touched on this a little bit in terms of your background, very, very finance-heavy, et cetera. Um, a big thing, obviously, in any startup is, and, and any business really is cash, right? You, you know, have you got cash to, to to grow, expand? But more importantly, have you got the cash to, you know, keep the business and the, the light switched on, so to speak? So how have you kind of managed cash burn? Obviously, you, you've very seen it with finance previously. How, how have you kind of managed cash burn in a software business? How's it differed, maybe? Well, I hope everybody remembers, if you take one thing away from this, it's cash is king, okay? So when you run out of cash, you are in a desperate position. You're in the business equivalent of the homeless people that you see in Piccadilly Gardens. So never, if you can avoid it, just please don't run out of cash. And if you are, make sure you know exactly what your runway is like. Make sure you start the fundraising process a long time before you run out of cash because institutions will uh, inevitably be in a very strong negotiating position when you run out of cash. So. Cash is king. What does that mean? I've spoken about having a weekly cash flow on Excel, a forecast that goes out 12 months. And I'm, I'm literally not exaggerating about that. You should know exactly what your net wages are going to be. You should know exactly what your payment terms are going to be from your customers. And you should model that and you should live by it. Um, if you can't do it yourself, make sure you find somebody at an early stage of your business who can do it for you because that they'll be worth their weight in gold. Um, one of the things that, one of the bits of feedback we've had from the Northern Powerhouse um, via Maven is that my digital is the best at managing cash in their portfolio. Um, now, there are many things that we'll be bad at, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we're the best at everything, but I would be pretty surprised if there's anybody better at cash management than us. Now, that isn't the holy grail, it's good and it's bad because it means you're a bit too conservative, possibly. Um, do that weekly forecast for a full year. Monitor your actuals against it. There should never be any surprises in that cash flow. And if there are surprises where you're missing your weekly forecast, you don't properly understand your business. So make sure you pause at that point and, and think about why there's a big cash outflow or even inflow that you hadn't been aware of. Nothing should surprise you in this area. And then a bit of controversial advice from an accountant, um, um, particularly in the startup phase, ignore accounting conventions. Make your, make your accounts as close to cash accounts as is possible. 
So um, just to caveat that a little, I want you to recognize your revenue in the month that it's earned, but your customers should be paying you within 30 days. If they don't pay you within 30 days, de-recognize the sale. Um, make sure that you're um, very close, to, you know, don't pay for something up front and then spread the cost over a year because you're gonna mislead yourself. Some accountant might say to you, oh, you bought a computer, spread that cost over three years. You could end up legging yourself up. If you buy yourself a computer, count that as an expense. Don't start posting things on your balance sheet because you could end up getting yourself into a world of hurt. Make your accounts, your management accounts, even your statutory accounts, because you can make statutory accounts on a cash basis as well. If an accountant tells you different, they're wrong. Um, make your management accounts as close to cash as possible. Um, and that's the that's the other advice I'd, I'd, I'd give on that. Cash, I can't say it strongly enough, is the most important thing when you're starting and running a business. In fact, it's the most important thing when you're running any business, really. Yeah, probably. I was, was going to say. Startup even more important. I think I think I understand your point about the um, about the expenses and stuff like that, but I might be right in saying that ultimately, because if you expend something over a three year period, that that three year may be gone before your cash is actually gone. So you want to put it in actually the month you've you've, you've actually got it, invest it all in that month. So it's a really good indicator of actually when your cash is going to run out. Is that is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. And 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 I go a bit further. You know, accountants. Um, make it sound like like an art doing it. All the counts are is your bank statement presented in a slightly different way. So don't fill your balance sheet up with all sorts of esoteric items because it's BS. Get everything through your P&L as quick as possible. And always remember that all your accounts are is your bank statement presented in a slightly different way. Yeah. Great, great point. So in terms of your, you know, you, you've gone from this startup to scale, how many staff are you and now is it 60, 70 staff you are? Uh, yeah, we're at uh, 70. In fact, I can tell you exactly. I think we're at, uh, we're at 70, but two thirds of our staff. This is one of your Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's an org chart with an Excel spreadsheet um, embedded in it. Uh, yeah, we're at 70 staff. We've got, um, 75 staff we've got 25 in the uk and we've got 50 in india okay and how how did you know how did you construct that landscape and obviously the dreaded thing how, how do you plan for for staff turnover well yeah i mean the, the first thing the first thing i'd say and this is this is you've, you've always got to be open with your institutional investor as far as you possibly can be um if you compare my digital with other software companies um, to all intents and purposes, the, the dev center is in India. We have moved, we've got five staff in the UK actually, who've moved over from India to work in the UK. So that, that 660,000 net migration headline you saw today, my digital's partly responsible for some of that. Let me tell you, our migration is healthy. Um, and I could argue, I could talk about that all day. Um, two thirds of the developer, two thirds of your staff being developers is not a standard metric. And if you compare that to other companies, it, it, it pops out. Um, so, but I've got very good reasons for, for that. And anybody who wanted to talk to me offline, I, I can talk to them about it. The strength of my digital is in its dev resource and the links we've got with local universities in India. And that's now spilling in, into the UK. Um, planning for staff turnover is something that very few businesses do. Um, now, 
we've been lucky um, in India specifically. Our staff turnover has always been below 10% in those years from 2015 to 2023. Um, the standard software turnover, software industry turnover in, uh, in India is more like 25%. In the service industries, it's even bigger, it's 40%. Um, in the UK, um, believe it or not, I'm slightly embarrassed to say this, but in the year ended March 2022, our staff turnover in the UK was 44%. In other words, half our staff were uh, left and were replaced. Uh, in the year to 31st of March 2023, it was only 10%. Um, that must be natural when you go through uh, scale up to startup. I'm, I'm guessing, I haven't really got much to compare it to, but um, that, that figure was a shock, but it was, it was necessary. So what, what do you do in terms of planning for staff turnover? Well, not planning for it, you're almost guaranteed you're going to bust the budget you've set for recruitment. So I would say look at your historic staff turnover figures and at the very least bake in 10%. That should be your recruitment budget starting point. Then you've got other, other roles that you'd hire for add your recruitment budget onto that. So I would say plan for it, put it in your forecast, put it in your financial forecast and use your organisation chart to understand where your position is going to come from over the next three years. Um, the, other, the other little tip I'd have is, and, and you'll, you'll, you'll like this as a recruiter, sure, but something genuinely I've learned. In the early days when I was doing startups, I was squeezing recruiters down and, and probably almost being quite proud of the fact that I was moving it from 20% market rate down to 40%. It is a false economy. Um, my advice to people would be make it 25%. Give your recruiter 25% in starting salary because you've got a better chance of getting the best candidates. You guys sit on the best candidates. You want to put them where they're going to be looked after because your reputation's on the line as well. But more importantly, make sure that you both get the benefit of it. So don't squeeze your recruiters down on margin. That would be a piece of advice. Test that, Chad. Um, yes, there you go. <laughs> uh, no, no, I think I think that's a, a good point in terms of that. You know, I can obviously add, add some value. I think the more invested you are in the recruiter, the better you'll get back. Right? We all know that, especially in in, in the development market, um, there's a certain level of, of turnover, especially in the first three to six months. So, the more invested you are in that recruitment partner, the more likely you're going to get on favourable stuff. Maybe paying a bit more at the front end. Um, but also you're getting more in return at other bits. You know, there's certain solutions that some recruitment companies offer where they even spread that payment over 12 months at the term for a higher investment. So, again, you know, it's uh, it's good from a cash management perspective, um, cash flow. Mm. Um, so I, I suppose, you know, what does, I suppose, what does the next three years look like for MDA? And, you know, like like um, like many founders, what does do you have an exit strategy? Has that been there from day one? What does that look yeah, like? Uh, do you know uh, an interesting thing is I find a lot of people being coy about this subject. Well, look, let's face it: if you've got institutional investment, you're always up for sale. There's no there's no doubt about that. Some people are uncomfortable talking about it. I don't think I am. Um, so our institutional investor, the Northern Powerhouse, who are who I will be forever grateful for, invested in 2019. So they've been in four years now. 
Um, typically, they, the institutional investors look to get out between three and five years. So it's realistic to think that at some point in the next two years, there'll be some kind of liquidity event. That doesn't mean to say that I as a founder will be leaving, but it means that our institutional investor needs their money back with a return. That's, that's absolutely appropriate. And um, we are committed to making sure that, that our institutional investor gets that return. Uh, because it's a quasi-government fund, um, I'm expecting that if they get two times their money, I'll get an MBE as well. Um, but um, where will an exit come from? Um, somebody wise once said to me a few years ago, whatever your exit strategy is, wherever you plan that the investment's gonna come from, it's almost guaranteed it'll come from somewhere else. Um, so, but that's no excuse for not having a strategy. So. Our revenue now is 2.5 million pounds. Our EBITDA is 0.5 million pounds. Our profit after tax is 150,000 pounds. So EBITDA can be a very misleading figure. Remember what I said about cash is king. The only figure that means anything as a startup in the figures I've just read out there is the 150,000 because that represents cash generation for the company. Um, this year it will obviously be uh, significantly larger than that. But for an institutional investor in a software company, the most important number is revenue and EBITDA. Um, so we're now at a point where we can go to market and we probably are at a stage now where we're out of that twilight zone that the Northern Powerhouse helps us out with, where some of the bigger private equity um, establishments will be more interested. Um, you know, people will always say to you when you start up things like, when you get to 1 million revenue, you'll have all sorts of people interested. Well, I got to 1 million revenue and people weren't as interested as I thought they'd be. And <laughs> get to 2 million revenue. I got to 2 million revenue. And then the, it's just the brow of another hill. Then cash generation becomes the most important thing. So we don't have an explicit strategy to say, we will do A, B and C, and then we'll achieve an exit. We're very, very conscious of the fact that with an institutional investment that's now four years old, there will be a liquidity event in my digital in the next um, in the next two years. What I would do is go back to the access technology story. Remember, uh, in 2010, they they took an investment of they were valued at 50 million. Now they're valued at nine billion. So I, as a founder, probably haven't got that 12 years left in me to get to 50 billion, but I am likely to stick around um, beyond the next liquidity event. Yeah, perfect, thanks for that. So I suppose the, the, the kind of title was, you know, what would you change with the benefit of hindsight? So what would you change with the benefit of hindsight as a, you know, looking back, you know, it's always tough looking back. You, I never like to do it because, you know, you'll think, why did I do this? Why did I do that? But if you had, you know, maybe a couple of things that you would change if you if you were starting the My Digital journey again, what would that be? Yeah, well, I would have invested in uh, access technologies. You, you probably think <laughs> I'm an access technologies fanboy, but they are I was gonna say, very, dominant, very dominant in our market. Um, but as, I, as I, I've been a bit churlish before, I said, for the benefit of hindsight, would all be Warren Buffett. And of course, that's true. Um, but what, what would I do with the benefit of hindsight? Well, I, I want to just reference a couple of other people from the doyens of our industry, I'd call them. There's a guy called Rob Scott from Rulion, uh, Sean, and who, who I know you're very familiar with. Another guy that I'll reference, 
Martin Hesketh from Bruxton. These are people who are my age, maybe a bit older than me, so they've now moved on. But I asked them this very question um, at a couple of points over the last three years, and they gave the same answer that I'd give. What, what advice would I give? Um, and with the benefit of hindsight, I would not make what I call big marquee hires. Um, so the, what does that mean? It means that when, you, when you're recruiting somebody that's six figures, in my world, that is a huge amount of money. Um, the chances of them not working out are very, very high. And the reason for that is, remember what I said is, they're usually only 50% as good as the CV says. But the, but the more significant thing for a startup is a big hire will knock your culture sideways. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. However, it often is a bad thing, particularly if you're not expecting it. Um, and so be very, very, very careful before you make a big name hire. Um, reference check them, do all your research. Don't do it in a rush. Um, you know, use professionals to, to do it. And even when you think you've got it absolutely right, you are still in the area where you're likely to make an error. So with the benefit of hindsight, I would probably still hire some of those big hitters. I might do a bit more research on them, but I would plan for the chances of them failing. Um, yes. Because big hitters, as I'm calling them in this, cost you money, but more importantly, they cost you time. Um, and they may actually cost you the resource, some of the resources that you started the journey with as well, because they see this person coming in who's not quite um, the, the finished article or everything you hope would be. So with the benefit of hindsight, I would be more cynical when hiring big hitters. Yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, when they when they see recruitment or anything in general, they don't actually look at it, how much time, um, et cetera, that, that takes up, you know, to onboard them, to find all, all that sort of stuff. If you think of a, a founder, you know, et cetera, all that should be added into the into the forecast of how much time you're spending on um, on actually finding these people. I, I spoke to a, a business a couple of months ago and they'd interviewed 78 people um, for one position. It was quite a senior level position, um, but there was a five stage process 15 of them have got to the fourth stage, but they weren't really building that into the into the actual, you know, the time it's actually taken to find these people as well, which is which is massively important, I suppose. Yeah, I don't know how it dovetails into your business model at all or, or recruitment uh, agencies generally, but um, if I get to a phase where I'm hiring a big hitter in the future, I would absolutely use a headhunter. Um, I would use somebody who's steeped in experience in the industry, who knows the market, um, and I would be very conservative about the time scale. You're absolutely right. And I wouldn't be sensitive about paying 25%, 30% of the starting salary as a fee. Um, yeah. Yeah, perfect. So I think the final question, we're almost out of time. It's been, it's been a, I suppose, you know, listeners or people going to tune in later, what, what advice would you give them if they were starting a, a software business today? Yeah, well, well um, if you're starting something, again, I can only speak from my perspective. Other people will have different perspectives, but you will sacrifice everything. And I, and I mean everything. You will sacrifice your social life. You'll sacrifice your family time. You will sacrifice your health and your wealth. Um, 
Make sure the people who are closest to you in your life are prepared to share that journey. Because it's one thing you having that, it's, it's quite another thing your spouse and your children understanding it. Your children generally just live in the life that they're accustomed to. So, but your spouse for sure needs to be committed to it. Forget about work-life balance. This, if you're gonna be successful, this will probably be the most important thing in your life um, before family, before um, you know your football team, uh, before everything. Um, so I would say, look before you leap, forget about work-life balance. If possible, merge the two. Um, now in my experience, the two are quite merged. The, the overlap between work and social and family life is such an overlap that I cannot distinguish between the two. And I think you need that because this will become all consuming and at least if all aspects of your life are involved in it, it will be easier to cope with. But make no mistake, there won't be any downtime. You must be prepared to work harder than every single competitor. So I'll tell you my biggest motivator every day. My biggest motivator is I get up in the morning and I know my competitors are more, might be more gifted than me. They might be better resourced than me. But the thing that motivates me when I get out of bed at 5 a.m. every morning is no competitor will beat me by working harder than me. And if you haven't got that in your DNA, you probably should not start a business. Um, you've got to be prepared to sacrifice everything and you've got to be motivated to work harder than every one of your competitors. Yeah, it's a, you know it's a lonely place being a, a founder at times, isn't it? You know, I think um, you'll you'll definitely experience that. Um, yeah, I have in, in in my journey. You know, there's people that you can share it with, but like you said, you've got to be prepared to go above and beyond. Your staff may work to a, to 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 a certain time frame, but you're always going. Yeah, they probably don't even see some of the stuff that you're doing, maybe over the weekend, early mornings, late nights, etc. So, I think it's really important, like you said, that you've got to be prepared to sacrifice certain things like, like most things in life. But when you found a business, you know, you've got to be prepared to sacrifice because otherwise I don't think you can maybe take it as far as you, you think. And yeah, maybe people will listen, but that's, that's my opinion also. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this little anecdote about the weekend that's about to come. So um, my digital started in 2015, if you like the analogy. So I'm, I come from a big footballing family, as you probably know. Um, 2015, my team, Stockport County, was in the Conference North when my digital started. As they've gone up through the divisions, of course, it's kind of mirrored my own life. And don't get me wrong, when I talk about it being all-consuming, of course I do have hobbies. I'm a Stockport County season ticket holder. Stockport County are going to Wembley this weekend for the first time since 2007 um, in the playoff final to, to get to Division 1. Um, that's extraordinarily important to me. Um, and I'm not going to the game, and partly I didn't schedule my calendar properly. I didn't expect us to get to the <laughs> final. But this weekend, um, I had arranged to climb Scarfell Pike with one of our customers and his wife. My wife's going as well. Stockport County got to the final. But ultimately, it's BBE, business before everything. Um, and I, I am sacrificing that trip to Wembley because one of my, I've arranged to climb Scarfell Pike with one of my customers and it wasn't even close. 
That was a sacrifice that I was happy to make because pressure and, that, and those things are a privilege. I'm privileged to have that customer and nothing in my personal life will ever trump that. Yeah, you t- I, I presume you'd be tuning up there on the pipe there maybe, John, hey? Uh, well, I've, I've, do you know what? The, the truth is I've managed to move it from Sunday to Saturday. Uh, <laughs> so I, I will be able to watch it um, hopefully with the champagne on ice. Who knows? Perfect. Um, and I hope Stockport County's successes over the last eight years continue to mirror my digitals. Perfect. Yeah, that, Yeah. well, that um, kind of wraps up. We're, we're, we're almost out of time. So firstly, thanks so much for your time. There's been some brilliant insights into you know the the background of a ceo and and how it feels to, to you know to to grow a software business um some great piece of advice i think you know the main one cash is king i think it's a it's a big um it's kind of an easy statement but a lot of founders kind of get that wrong they don't really think about the cash because once your business runs out of cash that's it so um yeah brilliant brilliant bit of advice really and sometimes maybe that's been a, a huge strength of my digital the fact that you've come from that accountancy background um that you've always had that at the forefront of your thinking whereas somebody maybe come from a development background something else into a software business that's probably not maybe at the forefront of the of the thinking. Um, yeah. So yeah, thanks so much for your time, John. Shall we finish on this then? Charles may be king in name, but cash is always king in reality. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks so much, John. Cheers. Thanks, thanks a million, Sean. Good luck. Bye bye.